The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. Thank you. Um, Good morning. I'm going to go ahead and read the scripture for today. Uh, We're doing Exodus chapter 23 verses 10 through 33. So Exodus chapter 23, verses 10 through 33. If you could all please stand for the reading God's word. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat and what they leave the beasts of the field they may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat you shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard 6 days you shall do your work but on the 7th day you shall rest that your ox and your donkey may have rest and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed pay attention to all that i have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest, of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The, beast of the, fir- the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. 
and I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, everyone. <clears throat> Let's pray. Father God, uh, we want to thank you so much for the, the new life that, that we're seeing around us. We thank you for the paddock daughter. We thank you for Mark and Nancy's new grandchild. We thank you for Ashley's nephew who was just born. Lord, all this new life. It reminds us that uh, you're in the business of new life. And Lord, we pray that your new life would be more and more manifest in us. We pray that you would use these very words that we're going to look at this morning. Words that can feel like they're very much separated from us across cultures and time, across covenants. We pray that despite all of that, your spirit would use them powerfully in our lives, knowing that you don't change and your purposes for your people don't change. So show us your face in these words, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> the fictional character Bilbo Baggins famously told his nephew, he said, it's dangerous business, Frodo, going out your door. You step onto that road, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. Well, it's not only hobbits who can set off cheerfully and optimistically and then find themselves in all sorts of peril. In his allegory about the Christian life, the Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan depicted many characters who started out toward the celestial city only to turn away from the path when various difficulties came along. It was only through moment-by-moment -moment reliance on the king and his gifts and his messengers that Christian could avoid peril and persevere on the narrow path to life. Well, in today's passage, we'll see more instructions for the Israelites on their journey into the promised land. If they go forward from Mount Sinai, just carelessly, just trusting in themselves, not suspecting any danger or deception, then their liberation from Pharaoh will lead to a destructive slavery of another kind. And so we need to hear these promises and these warnings ourselves as well because our own redemption will only prove itself real if we learn to trust moment by moment in God along the way. Now speaking of journeys, let me show you an outline of how we're traveling through the text today. So in verses 10 through 12, we're going to think about trusting God in the way we rest. In verses 13 to 19, 
trusting God in the way we worship. Then in 23 to 26, trusting God in the way he meets our needs, um, where we look for our needs to be met. And then finally, we'll look at facing God, uh, trusting God when we face our enemies. So it feels, it might feel a little bit like, um, you know, going to a tapas restaurant, if you've ever done that, the little plates, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there, maybe a little bit like that instead of one big roast or something. But um, there's good stuff here. And in all this, we're going to really feel our need to let Christ set the policy for every aspect of our lives. So remember that the context of this section of Exodus is Moses is still on Mount Sinai, and he's still receiving laws from God that are meant to be applied to the Israelite nation, which, unlike any nation before or since, was a theocracy. God himself was to be their king, and so he handed down these civil and criminal statutes, and we don't live in a nation like that, right? So we're not going to use these laws in the same way. But when we take time to understand them in their original context, we quickly see that there are enduring principles here from our unchanging God that are meant for us in Christ. So let's start with verses 10 through 12, and they fit under the category of Sabbath rest, so similar to what we saw in the fourth commandment. And at that time, we talked about how rest is an area in which our society massively struggles to trust God. Verse 12 is just kind of a restatement of the fourth commandment, but then verses 10 through 11 articulate something a little bit different. We see here that in ancient Israel, the prescribed pattern for land was for land to be cultivated and harvested just six years out of seven. In the seventh year, it would lay fallow, and just anyone could collect whatever grew naturally in the fields and the groves that year. Think about what a reset this would have been, a reset for the land, right? Uh, land that was that is overworked, it can be depleted of nutrients over time. But if you have this seventh year where everything lies fallow, then after that, all that organic matter is just plowed under, and uh, the land would remain more productive through the generations. Also, it could help spread, uh, stop the spread of certain patterns of uh, destructive insects or crop diseases. Think also about how this might even extend the life and usefulness of the oxen and the donkeys, right? Un- unnoticed injuries would have time to heal. There might be an increase in their reproductive capabilities. This would have been a reset also for the families, One year out of seven, you didn't have to do the work of farming. So think of that extra time to pursue the other things that lead to quality of life, like an increased focus on education or various artisan projects or maybe repairing houses or fences or storage facilities. Verse 12 also emphasizes that it's a reset for workers. It mentions the son of your servant woman and foreign alien. So Sabbath, on Sabbath, um, whether it's the Sabbath day or Sabbath year in this case, even workers with the lowest status should still be given the dignity of rest. And this is a reset for the poor, and that's really the main focus in this text, that this is a rest that results in generosity toward the poor. And uh, perhaps with what they're allowed to glean during that year, the poor would have been able to set aside food for the future, Or at the very least, with one year and seven, without the need to pay for food, they could focus instead on repaying their debts. Well, this all sounds quite idyllic, but but what would it have cost them to make this work? We might be worried, like, well, so the farmers just have to eat that loss of income that year? 
If you're worried about that, don't be, because Leviticus 25 gives more details about this policy, and it says that the land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and dwell in it securely. And if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year? If we may not sow or gather in our crop, I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year, so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating some of the old crop. You shall eat the old until the ninth year when its crop arrives. Now, we actually have no evidence that this pattern was consistently obeyed in ancient Israel. My guess is that it was followed by different segments of the society at different times. Because in Second Chronicles, it actually says that Judah went into exile for 70 years, in part so that the land could enjoy the Sabbaths it missed. Um, so they didn't fully obey. Now, the purpose of all these Sabbath regulations was to cultivate trust. Do you trust me enough to stop your productivity, God is asking. But even though God had promised to provide abundantly if the people used their resources in his way, they just couldn't trust him enough to reap that reward. What about us? We may not be farmers, and even if we were and we left our land fallow, no one in this society would know what to do with that. But what this gets after, regardless of our culture, is that we need to have pauses in productivity built into how we use our resources and then use those pauses to help others. Remember that aspect that we talked about of Sabbath, that it's not a time to be selfish. It's not a time to just shut off and, and, uh, and you know, treat yourself. No, it's a time that's open to bless others with how you rest. And likewise here with this Sabbath year. So how do you use your resources? Do you have a business that you can purposefully make less productive so as to give unique rest to your employees or benefits to your community? Do you have assets that you can share with people who God has brought across your path who simply don't have anything like that? How is generosity to, to those who are worse off than you scheduled into your life? Will you trust God enough to slow down and to proactively share what is rightfully yours? Will you invite the less fortunate onto your land to gather food, so to speak? And if not, why not? Do we not trust God to take care of us and to, to give us ample productivity if we pursue his priorities? See, he's promised that this demand is for your good. But it feels a little bit abstract, I know, because we're not an agrarian society. Where do we start? In ancient Israel, the poor who were being considered here were fellow Israelites. They were the people of God in your own community. So when we bring that forward into the New Covenant, Galatians 6 says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So it leaves us with the question, what would it look like to pursue our own prosperity less in order to benefit our fellow Christians more? May God give us some great ideas as we ponder that. Well, verse 13 takes a turn into some laws that are related less to rest and more to the way we worship. What does it look like to trust God with our worship? The danger in this section is unsuspectingly slipping into paganism, or in our context, secularism. And so we have this warning in verse 13. It says, Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. When living in a context full of pagan deities, like they were, 
it wouldn't be hard to find yourself just talking casually about those, those false gods. But the instruction here is to realize that what crosses your lips is also running across your mind. So it says, don't mention those false gods, certainly not in worship. Don't make oaths to them, even as a joke. Don't even make a habit of discussing them in ordinary conversation, because to do so would treat those false gods as if they were on par with Yahweh. But there is one God. Now, we don't have to be superstitiously afraid about discussing other people's religion, but what's the purpose? And what's the tone? And where does that conversation end? Does it end with you commending the unique majesty and true power of our Lord? Or does it kind of just devolve into a simple comparison of religions? Because if so, that's it's just not a good way to use your speech. Bringing any religious system alongside the Bible in your thoughts about the faith, that's an unforeseen danger for a lot of people. It's not uncommon today to meet people who are blending New Age and Buddhist and animistic philosophies with their so-called Christian practice, but syncretism is prohibited by the God who has spoken through one book. Well, the discussion of worship continues when he lays out these three festivals for the Hebrew calendar. How do we avoid the danger of taking God for granted and drifting into more and more secular lives? One huge help in that struggle is the observance of special celebrations. <clears throat> so three times a year, the Israelite men were to make a pilgrimage to the central sanctuary, which would later be Jerusalem, and they were to make offerings, and they were to eat and drink together uh, to express their joy before God, to express gratitude for his goodness. Now, it's not that women were excluded. We see in Judges and 1 Samuel that many women did attend these as well, but it just wasn't required of them. The travel wasn't a burden that was demanded of them, which probably would have been a great help if they were pregnant or had small children. Now, the Psalms show us that these gatherings were often times for singing to God. And even in the days of Jesus, they were times for special teachings in the courts of the temple. Each festival had a unique meaning. We talked about the Feast of Unleavened Bread back in Exodus chapter 13. It was the week after Passover. It was always in the spring, time of the barley harvest. And the distinguishing mark for this festival was that no leaven, no yeast was to be found in anyone's house. Because that was a symbol of how Egypt, the land of idolatry, was to be fled in great haste, leaving not even enough time for bread to rise. Now, the second festival here is called the Festival of the Harvest. Sometimes it's called the Festival of Weeks or Pentecost. And it happened in early summer when the wheat was harvested in Israel. And the main event, the main focus was on that harvest. The first of it was baked into loaves and presented to the Lord. So it was a way to remember that the good provision was all from his hand. But in later generations, they would expand their understanding of that provision. And so... Pentecost became known as a time to celebrate the giving of the law, a provision from God even better than bread. And then we know that in the book of Acts, it was the day of Pentecost when God gave the stunning gift to his people of his Holy Spirit. The third festival given here in Exodus is the Feast of the Ingathering, which happened to be, um, it happened in what to us would be fall. Um, it's when the produce of the vines and the orchards would be brought in. And this festival would later come to be called the Feast of Booths because people would live in tent-like structures in order to remember God's faithfulness to them during the wilderness wanderings. He's not only, it's not only about ingathering the, the olives and the, the, um, 
the fruits and grapes, but it's about God's ingathering of a people. And the point to all of this is that the people would be reminded throughout the year of their covenant with God. They would celebrate his goodness, and these festivals would reset their mentality so that they would trust him more even when they went back home and everything felt mundane and challenging again. But there was nothing magical about these festivals themselves, right? They could be used for true worship or not. That's why in Isaiah, God told the people that he was disgusted by their hypocrisy because these people would get all pumped up for the holiday and then they would just not really have any thoughts of God the rest of the time. He says, your appointed feasts my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Well, similarly for us, Seriously pursuing God through special times of the year could be a really good idea if our hearts are in the right place. If we want to use those rhythms to orient us for our everyday service to God. And the church calendar has some patterns that can certainly help us to take time to focus on holiness, to take time to focus on being whole. But those holidays won't do us any good if we treat them like ways to get God's attention. They can be a helpful tool, but they are not the substance of our faith. You know, I would love for this church to be the sort of place where we are blessed by truly God-focused holidays. Think about a true Thanksgiving where we humble our hearts away from entitlement, away from complaint, and we leave that feast with real joy. Or a wondrous Christmas where the mystery of the incarnation never fails to astound us. A sober Lenten season, soul-searching, remembering that this world is not our home, followed by a majestic and a loud Easter, the day when the victory of Jesus' resurrection and our future resurrection are just wildly celebrated. We could even think about what it looks to celebrate Pentecost here, to celebrate the Holy Spirit, to delight in that gift every year, or Reformation Day, always rediscovering the treasure of God's word. Now, in Christ, these special days aren't requirements that are laid upon us. This passage is still commending to us, though, the practice of being intentional with our calendar, forcing ourselves to slow down, to look around, to look inward, to look upward, because we're created to need times of fasting and feasting. So let's trust God by willing to, being willing to interrupt our schedules in those sorts of worshipful ways. Now, after the calendar of festivals, then we've got three seemingly random laws, but there's, there's, um, the first two seem to be connected by, it's like a warning against cheating, so to, spe- so to speak, on um, sacrifices to the Lord. It talks about uh, the, the fat, don't let the fat of the feast remain into the morning. That may sound fine to you, you may not like to eat fat, but in the ancient world, the fat was a special part, and these people didn't necessarily get meat every day, so they would want to save that. Um, Verse 19 says that the best of the first fruits were to be offered. No giving God your leftovers. So these precedents should impact the way that we ourselves give our resources to the Lord. Are we holding back? Or are we giving of our finances or our energy or our time in a selfish way where we'll somehow be able to get some perks on the side? If that's the case, don't you think that God can see those mixed motives? Like, better to just 
hold back from giving him an offering than to pretend at it and treat treat him kind of like a, a burden to get around and then get something for yourself on the side. So like a lot of parts of Scripture, these verses kind of remind us that we need to come to him fully, surrendering all, or don't come at all, because you'd only be fooling yourself by trying to be shrewd with God. And verse 20 gives us this odd little instruction you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now, it's been pointed out that a practice like this is a violation of the created order because a goat's mother's milk was meant to give it life, not cause its death. But even beyond that, archaeologists have found references to a ritual meal like this in Canaanite culture that was part of worshiping the gods of fertility. So Yahweh is saying here, hey, don't worship me like that, okay? Uh, don't think that you can manipulate my blessings to you through some sort of magic meal. It's a warning to us not to take on forms of worship from other cultures. A warning against blending spiritualities, making sort of a worship cocktail in attempts to, to be relevant to the people around us. So in all these directions, whether about festivals or sacrifices or goats and milk, we see that there's a very real danger for Israel that they could try to worship God according to their own schedule and according to their own preferences. And when that happens, drift will always occur so that we're actually not really willing at all to interrupt our lives for him. Or if we do, then we adopt corrupt methods from the culture around us. We could probably take weeks just talking more about this, about a theology of worship, of what, what does it mean to worship God rightly in the way that he prescribes, not according to our own preferences. We could talk about um, not neglecting to meet together. We could talk about giving generously and wholeheartedly to the Lord, not taking our cues from the culture around us. But for now, we're just going to put it this way. Trust him with your worship. Dare to do it his way as outlined in his word, and that will not only rightly orient your life, but it'll bring soundness to the people of God. Well, as we turn to looking at trusting God for our needs, I'm going to skip ahead now to look at verses 24 to 26. And these verses also think about worship, but it's with a little bit of a different slant. It's looking about the pitfall of looking somewhere other than to God for your provision, whether it's food or health or success or whatever. It's talking about the danger of doing what everyone else around you does with their devotion in order to thrive and survive. Now, in the ancient world, there was a God for everything. We talked about that with the pantheon of fake Egyptian gods and how Yahweh put them to shame through the plagues. But now Israel was going to be walking into a similar context in Canaan. Like, do you need rain or good crops? Then pray to Baal. Do you need fertility? Worship Astarte. Do you need success in battle? honor the goddess Anat, and, and so forth. So even if the Canaanite people had been driven out, their shrines, their pillars, their tablets might still remain. And honestly, what society isn't tempted to seek out some sort of hidden wisdom from the mysterious ways of the people who came before them? That's why we're obsessed with Nostradamus and the Mayan calendar and whatever happened at Stonehenge. We tend to be fascinated by the exotic, but if we really lived in that place in that time, we would see that those ways were full of death and emptiness. So the one true God wants his people to overthrow those monuments to false worship, to break them in pieces, to look to him alone for provision. And we've talked about how our idolatry is really just like the ancients, only more subtle. 
We may not have faces and statues and names associated with our false gods. Uh, but the, their temples where we bow down are quite common places. They look like gyms and malls and dating sites and corporate offices and spas and sports stadiums and vitamin shops and beaches and bars. See, whenever we give ourselves in a desperate way to get things or feelings that, that we know we can't achieve naturally, we are worshiping something. So these warnings are very relevant for us, that you're not going to find the nourishment or significance or belonging. You're not going to find the lasting high that you long for by chasing after the things of this world. We need to consider these old covenant promises of God to his people, that as they serve him, he will be the one to give them an abundance of food and drink. He would take away sickness from among them. None would miscarry or be barren in the land. They would live to a ripe old age. Well, wait a minute. Is God not keeping his promises then? Because I've known Christian farmers who've had horrible harvests or business owners who've gone bankrupt. It didn't seem like their bread was blessed. I've known of Christians who died of COVID. Why was there sickness among them? My wife and I have suffered through multiple miscarriages. One of my best friends died of cancer, leaving two small children. Didn't seem like the number of his days was fulfilled. So even if these ideal circumstances were the case for a time when ancient Israel was obedient, what's the disconnect? And if God's provision of health or security or longevity, children, doesn't work anymore, then why should I be motivated to serve him alone, like verse 25 tells me to? Well, we've said before that the Old Covenant, everything that happened in the Old Testament, it was a time of types and shadows. Things happened in patterns or in wooden ways in order to point forward to the fuller and more glorious reality that would arrive in the person of Jesus Christ. Through the cross and resurrection, he has ushered in a whole new reality and that is so glorious. It means it's so lasting, it's so permanent, it's so transcendent that we don't have to cling to these mere physical tokens of God's provision. We're even able to forego them if he calls us to that, knowing that we stand to inherit everything with Christ. Starting now, in his church, we see glimpses of that. We have foretastes of that, deposits of that. But it goes on to eternity, and we will inherit all. Now, we may, um, we may see that he asks us to walk through suffering or lack on the path that he has for us in the meantime. Jesus told his disciples, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Well, I just wanted to be clear because there are a lot of false teachers these days who say that if you just have enough faith, then you won't be sick or poor or suffer misfortune. And that's not what these words meant then. They meant trust God, not Baal, to provide for all of your needs. And if you do, the land will be saturated with God's blessing for life. That was a reality in the brief times when ancient Israel was obeying the law of Moses. God wanted to give an object lesson about his goodness and his sufficiency. And he often gives object lessons today too. He gives us glimpses of that same abundance. But it's not all the time because, we'll get to that. But I just want to say 
we don't want to have a prosperity gospel, right? Where we think just have enough faith and God's going to rain down the good stuff. We also don't want to hyper-spiritualize these words to the point where they don't have any meaning. Like, no, he does give us really good things. Like, look, look at the Paddock's daughter, for example. He gives us good things. Um, so these words are true, but there's a sense in which they're still coming true because like Israel in the wilderness, we're not yet in the promised land. But even here, even now in the wilderness, even though we can wait for an abundance, he gives us what we need in the wilderness. So some people trust in their beauty or their health or their skill or their connections or their financial portfolio, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And the last danger that this passage exhorts us to trust God with is facing enemies. Do you trust him when you face opposition, when things are hard, when you don't see a way forward? Uh, Trusting God amid opposition. Trusting God when we have enemies who are also his enemies. Sections like verses 22 to 33 can feel a little bit irrelevant to us because we don't have militant tribes who we're up against for our own survival. And maybe these words are a little bit jarring because, you know, we think about the fact that the Israelites were to drive out these other nations. And what, those other nations, they, that was their homeland. So how do we make sense of all this? First, I just want to note that it's right to be nervous about validating the displacement of other peoples, right? Like our own American history is plagued with truly horrible incidents. Like when Andrew Jackson had the Cherokee forcibly moved off of their native land in Georgia after gold was found there. And then along the Trail of Tears to Oklahoma, thousands died of starvation and disease and exposure. So our guilty national conscience can sometimes color the way that we read biblical history. But if we were to zoom out to span all of history, we would see that very few cultures in the last 5,000 years have settled a new land without displacing another culture. And going on into the future, the Bible promises that wars and conquests and large-scale slaughter will continue and even ramp up before the return of Christ. That's human nature. It doesn't make it right, but it's not unique. What was unique, though, was Israel's conquest of Canaan around 1400 BC, unique because it was specifically commanded by God in Scripture as an expression of his justice. If you believe in the God of the Bible, then you believe that he owns everything and that he can give power over the nations to whom he pleases. And I'll also mention in passing that if you had a taste of Canaanite culture, you would have welcomed the change. We talked last week about the bestiality, the dark magic, Add on to that child sacrifice, a might-makes-right approach to daily life. You would not have wanted to be a woman or poor or sick or anything vulnerable in that society. So as one historian put it, a great civilization is not conquered from without until it has destroyed itself from within. In Genesis 15, God told Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs and will be servants there. So he's talking about Egypt. And they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions and they shall come back here to Canaan in the fourth generation. And then God gives a reason for the delay. He says, for the sin of the people of the land 
is not yet complete. God in his justice did not give the land to Israel until its sin was ripe for judgment. And you can see God's hand in it all because this this was not a massive invading force from it. Like Israel was the little guy. They were inexperienced at war. They had crude weapons. They had really no way to compete with the iron chariots of their opponents unless God was doing the fighting for them. So, assuming that we're willing to concede that we can't overly read our modern experiences back into this situation, that still might leave us a little bit unable to find a parallel in our lives. What conquest do we need to get after in the right way? Trusting God and not ourselves. The New Testament points us to three struggles. One is to put to death the power of sin within ourselves. Another is to resist the powers of this present darkness in the spiritual realms. And the third is to go and make disciples of all nations, seeing their allegiance transferred from the prince of this world to Christ, their rightful king. So we are described as the church militant in in theology. Um, We are engaged in a continuous warfare against evil and the enemies of Christ. But our new covenant warfare doesn't look militaristic in its expression. There's no killing. There's not even any smashing of other people's pillars. We're not demolishing Hindu temples here. We're not going to use literal weapons at all, not even with bad people. Second Corinthians says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So our warfare looks like prayer. It looks like speaking God's word in dark places. It looks like resisting temptation by the power of the Spirit. It looks like loving people who hate us, even when they're hurting us. It looks like killing sin that would hide in our hearts. It looks like building the church, sharing the faith, engaging in global missions so that the lamb might receive the full reward of his suffering. And those struggles can feel impossible. can feel like there's no way forward. We look at that promised inheritance and it just seems unattainable. There's no way I'll finally be able to completely purge such and such a sin from my life. The temptation is just too strong. There's no way that this small church could ever make a big difference. There are just too many cultural factors stacked against it. There's no way my neighbor or coworker could come to faith. Their life is just too dark. There's no way we could ever see a network of healthy churches stretching all across what for too long has been called the Muslim world. So that's how we feel about this spiritual opposition. But what does God say in the text? I will blot them out. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. So one scholar tells us to note the wisdom of God to be observed in the gradual advances of the church's interests. God in his providence often delays mercies because we are not ready for them. So he works slowly in a way that forces us to trust him. The threat of the nations to ancient Israel, that was what helped every new generation to trust God for themselves. They had to. Just like the trials of this world build and refine the faith of Christians. Now, under the reigns of King David and King Solomon, all of these words came true about the extent of the land. The full extent of the territory was occupied. They received what God had promised to them. 
And just as certainly God will make good on his promises to purge this earth of all that's evil, including false religions, oppressive violence, and the corruption lingering in the hearts of his own people. He goes before us to secure those victories. And the way he does that is quite notable. Verse 20 speaks of an angel going before you, quote, to guard you and bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. And this raises all sorts of questions. We're being told to obey an angel. What angel would even have the possibility of pardoning our sins? In what angel does the very name or reputation of Yahweh dwell? And why, throughout this section, does the pronoun keep shifting back from he, I, he, I, in discussing what this figure will do? Now, keep in mind that the word angel really just means messenger. So, most Christian interpreters see in this angel here um, appearance of God the Son before he took on flesh. Jesus is the messenger of God who brings us to the place he prepared. He told his disciples that he goes to prepare a place and will take us to himself. And so the central thought for us today is verses 20 to 21, that Jesus will guard you on the way. He will bring you to the place that God has prepared. So pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. If we do, then the promise to Abraham belongs to us also, that he will be an enemy to our enemies and an adversary to our adversaries. He will make demons and whoever they're using afraid. No one can harm you or thwart his purposes for you, but he will tolerate no alternate allegiance on our part. No peace treaties with other approaches to life and worship. As we think about the aspects of our life that may feel out of control or like the enemy of our soul is just having a field day, think about these hornets in verse 28. I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from you all in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. Hornets. Really, God. Like it, it sounds so silly, so impossible to measure, so slow. And I think that's the point. So you may be impatient with God saying, take away my enemies. And maybe his response to you would be, I am, in a way that won't hurt you in the long run. He's, he's doing it his way and in his time. So it's a call for patient endurance. It's a call for us to develop eyes for his more subtle ways of deliverance. And so you need to actively force yourself to stop fretting and stop fearing. It's not your role to fear. That's the role of God's enemies here. In addition to the hornets, it, there's this terror spoken of in verse 27. Now, I'm sure God's enemies grow afraid in all sorts of ways, but... And it just crossed my mind. Do you know what one terror of God is to the American society? Being alone with one's thoughts. A recent study, this is no joke, a recent study showed that 25% of females and 67% of males were willing to electrically shock themselves rather than endure 15 minutes of silent stillness. (laughs) 
So, so when you trust God amid opposition, and he gives you that, that unshakable calmness and that peaceful resolve that's yours in Christ, when you're able to be still and silent and happy, it befuddles, it unnerves, it scares the world around you because you're showing them that you will not serve their gods and the noise of their false worship won't be a snare to you. Well, it's not unique to view life as a journey, but in Christ we know specifically from where we've come and to where we're going. And this text warns us that we also need to follow his lead each step of the way. If we trust our own intuitions, then we're going to end up following the crowd, not the way. We'll find ourselves looking to the same things they worship, even if we call it the worship of our God. And we'll fall to the enemies of our soul, or worse yet, we'll join them. But the good news is that the God who you trusted when you left the city of destruction, he is also trustworthy along the way. So trust him in how you rest, trust him in how you worship, trust him in how you face opposition from the world and sin. Trust him for everything you need. And if you do that, he promises he'll bless you. He promises he'll fulfill the number of your days. And we've looked at a variety of material today, and I don't know what the Holy Spirit might be putting his finger on in your life. Maybe you're not resting as God has told you to. Maybe you're not worshiping him with your best and your first in a thoughtful way intentional manner. Maybe you're looking to other sources of sustenance and provision instead of asking him for your daily bread and then being content. And maybe you're trying to fight your demons, figurative and literal, in ways that trust yourself instead of him. Whatever the case may be, the same message is for us today that we see for the ancient Israelites here. Trust and obey Christ, the messenger of God. Believe the good news that in him you don't need to fear rest or poverty or the surrounding culture or enemies or waiting. So don't fear, trust, and obey. God, we ask for your help in this. Um, Our hearts are fickle, and we are so quick to run after what comes naturally, which is fed to us every day from the people around us, the culture that we live and breathe in. So Lord, open our eyes to see your subtle ways of salvation, your sure deliverance that happens in ways that surprise us. And I ask that you would take away the fear and you would give us faith. In Christ's name I pray, amen.